Let's join each other in Mark chapter 4. Mark's fourth chapter as we're slowly going through this section of Scripture on Jesus' teaching of the parable of the sower or the soils or the seed. You can hear it called all three. I prefer to call it the parable of the soil because really in focus here are these different soils that receive the seed from the sower. Let me remind you of what we studied last week. Just read the parable that Jesus provides here in Mark chapter 4 and begin to look at his interpretation and application of it. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. He, that is Jesus, began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and he, he sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. After the sun had risen, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked it out and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30 and 60 and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking about the parables. He was saying to them, to you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, they get everything in parables. So, that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. One of the most important parts, and actually we could say the result of Bible study, is the formulation of a theological worldview. We've said it so many times, let me repeat it again. Everyone is a theologian. Everyone has a view of God and a view of how God operates in his world, but it's either accurate or inaccurate. It's growing or it's stagnant. Another way to say that is the scriptures are given to us to inform and shape our worldview. They weren't just for little devotions to have and verses to underline. They were to shape our thinking so that when we walk away from the text and our Bible is not in front of us, we can look at the world through theological eyes and see it as God intends. Think about this for a moment. What is your theology of work? You have a theology of work. What is it? Do you have a theology of play and recreation? Do you have a theology of family that you can identify? What's your theology of marriage? Your theology of parenting? Do you have a theology for aging? For government? For the news? 
Do you have a theology for church? Do you have a theology that informs what you're doing in this very moment listening to God's word? Do you have a theology of sickness and and tragedy? Does your theology support the notion that you are certainly going to die? Do you have a theology of death? What's your theology of the afterlife? Well, all of these things, strangely enough, or oddly enough, Jesus actually addresses in the Gospels, and Paul and the other writers flesh out in the epistles. In the section before us over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at Jesus giving us a theological framework to understand faith and unbelief. He's giving this to his disciples. He's framing their thinking because as they go out, they're going to meet some who are going to respond. They're going to meet others who are going to disbelieve to the point of persecuting them and even killing them and martyring them. Do you have a theological grid, a perspective, a worldview to think about such things from a biblical Christian theological perspective, not just what you might think the Bible would say about this, but book and chapter and verse to be able to see the world as God has intended for us to see it. One of the most intentional dimensions of Jesus' incessant teaching was to provide and inform the disciples with this theological worldview that they needed so badly for their ministry alongside him and that they would need in the years afterwards as he left them with the gospel to take to the world. But the Holy Spirit, in a sweet providence, recorded the perfect words of Jesus for us to have to develop our own worldview from his lips, but also the apostles and the disciples would also expand on that, and that's why we have the rest of the New Testament, that would inform and explicate and apply and infer what we need to have for a biblical worldview. God intends for us to be equipped, and this passage before us is central to understanding our taking the gospel into the world, and frankly, how people will respond positively, how people respond negatively. Now, let's review a little bit about the context and where we are in Galilee. We're around a lake, right? Uh, Jesus, the majority of his ministry is up around the Sea of Galilee. It's a giant lake, 13 miles from top to bottom, eight miles at the widest part across. He's drawn a large crowd, Mark tells us, He teaches them by getting into a boat, sitting down, and pushing back from the shore. I showed you last week the slide where uh, archaeological scholars tell us this almost certainly happened. It's called the Cove of the Parables. He would have gotten in a boat, pushed back, and the perfect surrounding of this cove was like an amphitheater. It's like a theater that he could speak. The calm water on which he would have sat would have worked as as a sounding board underneath him, thrown his voice up. Mark tells us that this crowd was large, so does Matthew. So you can imagine this cove with people all around Jesus, him out in the middle in this boat, speaking to them, preaching and teaching, but he's teaching them differently than he has been. Now he's teaching them in riddles, in parables. This is just a few miles west of Capernaum and Jesus has drawn a crowd yet again. What Jesus is going to provide in this parable, the parable of the soils, is the anatomy of faith and the anatomy of unbelief. 
And just a little practical aside as we go through this passage, I think the Lord is clearly intending for us to be encouraged by knowing what the responses to the gospel will be and not to be surprised. There are four responses. The fourth response has three different dimensions of response. Three of the four are not positive. And he wants us to be informed, not surprised, not taken by, by, uh, uh, by behind in realizing that most of the people I tell the gospel to, they, they don't respond. I'm not typically causing revival at work at the water cooler when I talk about Jesus. There is a theology for faith and a theology for unbelief that Jesus will equip us with in this parable. This foundational truth the disciples needed as a foundation as they went out as well. It was a gracious preparation for them. It is for us as well. As we said last week, a parable is a teaching device. It comes from two Greek roots, para and balo. It means to throw alongside, to, to illustrate. It's a metaphor that points to spiritual truth. The parables of Jesus are some of the most recognizable parts of his teaching in the New Testament, but they are also some of the most misunderstood. We said last week as we're going through the parables, be careful not to stretch every detail to mean something. Look for the point of the story. He's given the disciples in this story a realistic expectation about their ministries and discipleship moving forward. There are two central themes that we've said all along in the first four chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Mark wants to paint a picture of what discipleship really looks like. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Those were the first words of the men who began to follow him. Follow me and they attached themselves to Jesus. But also is to highlight Christology. Who is Jesus? What is he like? Mark has less teaching than the other synoptics. It's mostly showing us who Jesus was and and what he did. There are two extended teaching sections here in Mark 4 uh, with these parables and also in Mark 13 about the end times. Predominantly beyond that, it's just what Jesus did and how he interacted in dialogue with people. In this parable, Jesus points to, as I said, faith and unbelief, receiving and rejecting the gospel. Three descriptions are given of those who reject the gospel, one of those who do. It's progressively worse also if you look at it. The first is going to be a no response. The second is going to be a short-lived response. And the third is going to be a longer association with the gospel only to fall away when things get tough and the world begins to tempt. Now, let me give you just a little preview of where we're going with this. We're gonna look at the four soils, the first today and the the other three in, in the next three weeks. Today, we're looking at the impenetrable soil, which is an indifferent heart. Next week, we'll look at the shallow soil, which is an impulsive heart. The third is the thorny soil, which is a preoccupied heart. And then finally, the good soil, which is a responsive heart. This all leads, what I read earlier, to a time in verse 13 where Jesus begins to talk to his disciples in explanation. But in order to get this, you got to rewind the tape back to verse 10. He says in verse 9, if you have ears to hear, you can hear. If it's been granted to you to understand the the meaning of these parables, listen. 
Verse 10, though, it says, as soon as he was alone. The crowds have now dispersed. It's just the 12 and a few other followers who are there with the Lord. Matthew tells us they they wanted to know why Jesus was speaking in parables. Why are you speaking in parables? Matthew 13, 10, the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered, his answer is important to make sense of the parable. He says, to you it's been given because you have ears to hear and eyes to see, but to them, it's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter six, verses nine and 10, it's uh, uh, while seeing, they, they won't perceive, and hearing, they will not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. The context is Isaiah's commissioning. Now, I think the disciples who had some familiarity with the Older Testament would know exactly where these words would have come from. I, I want to frame that for you, if we can. Take your Bibles and turn back to, excuse me, to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. This is a passage that we're familiar with, but Unfortunately, we don't read long enough in it. Isaiah chapter six. Remember, the three of the soils are unresponsive. Only one of the four is responsive. Look at the full context of Isaiah's commissioning here because that's the exact point. Many will turn away, few will respond that the Lord tells Isaiah, Isaiah six, very familiar words, the in the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Isaiah speaks, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. I'm always intrigued by that, that Isaiah's first recognition of his sinfulness was his mouth. Jesus says from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues, and he touched where? <laughs> My mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Well, here I am. Send me. Typically we stop the passage there. But the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 4 comes from these next verses. Then he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Rather, the hearts of this people, render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Isaiah speaks back, oh Lord, how long? He answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and forsaken place, the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there 
will be, what percentage? A tenth portion in it. And it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's filled. The holy seed is its stump. Isaiah is commissioned, think about this. Isaiah is commissioned to say, go tell them and they won't hear. Go show them and they won't see. But a tenth will, a remnant will, That idea that only a few will believe and the many will disbelieve frames the background of Jesus' interpretation moving forward in this parable. Back to Mark chapter four. It's to this principle that Jesus aims this parable. There are few. What does he say in Matthew seven? The way is broad to destruction. Many there will be who find it, but few will find it the kingdom of God. This is so gracious of the Lord so that when we evangelize, when the disciples evangelize and not everyone broke out in revival, which God is completely capable of doing. He did it in Nineveh. He did it in New England. But when it doesn't happen, he is preparing us with a theology that doesn't distrust him, that knows he knows and can be trusted So over the next few weeks, we're going to slow down and examine these soils in detail. Why? Because he's going to tell us in a moment, this parable is the key to understanding all of the other parables. Miss this one, you'll miss them all. It also informs our theology of faith and unbelief. So let's look at this first soil together in verses 13 to 15. He begins with the consideration of the indifferent heart. Those hearts that are indifferent to the message of God, the gospel. As we do so, I'm going to break it down with you and we'll look at three characteristics of those with an indifferent heart to the gospel. Three characteristics of those with an indifferent heart to the gospel. Again, we covered the first 12 verses next week. He, last week, now he comes up to verse 13. He says to them, these few that he's pulled aside, the crowd is dispersed. He has the 12 and just a few others. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? It's a test question. I just told a riddle. Have you figured it out? How will you understand all the parables. Do you not understand this one? Then you have no hope of understanding the other ones. That's why this parable stands out in all three synoptics as critical for the key to unlocking the way Jesus is gonna teach in parables. According to verse 10, Jesus has dismissed the crowd. Now he only has believers. And I say that in quotation marks because Judas is likely here. Now, I hate doing this sometimes, but the Greek text is critically important here. The Lord uses two different verbs that come across in the New American Standard and in the NAS as, a same, as the same word, but they're not the same word. It's the word understand. Do you not understand this parable, he says? How will you understand all the parables? Two different words in the Greek. The first one is oida. It just has the idea of, um, uh, of insight or intuition. Don't, don't, you, don't you just see it on the surface? The second understanding, though, is that of gnosko. 
It's by recognition, observation, and experience. If you don't have a head knowledge about what this one idea is in the parable, you will never be able to have an experiential application of the others. I also think Jesus' question is a gentle little rebuke and pushback on these men, likely women there, there too. You don't get it? I've been teaching with you. I've been going all around Galilee. You need me to explain this to you? Jesus is going to have these who have ears to hear know the interpretation so they can then interpret other parables as well. It implies that the master wants them to listen carefully so they may be able to catch up and also teach other parables as well. Why is the parable of the soils, why is this parable then the paradigm, the pattern, the key that unlocks all of the other parables according to the Lord? Well, Jesus' interpretation in verses 14 to 20 gives us the answer. It collates the two very issues that Mark is screaming in all 16 chapters. Discipleship and Christology. What does it mean to follow Christ because of who Christ is? Jesus is doing something with this parable in the lives of his disciples, but Mark is doing something with this parable in the progression of his argument to show that Christianity is about following a Jesus who is worthy to be followed. Who he is, what he did, what he taught, what he said, how he interacted makes him worthy. To see him is to desire then to follow him. He first says, look, you got to get this to get the other ones. Some people don't get it at all. You're here with ears to hear. We looked at this last week, but let me remind you, those who have ears to hear are those who are interested in what Jesus is, who Jesus is and what Jesus said and want to follow him. You don't have to pass a spiritual hearing test. You just have to develop a simple desire and interest to have ears to hear and eyes to see. Second characteristic is this. They have some exposure to the gospel. These indifferent hearted people have some exposure to the gospel. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't pay much attention to the sower. Now, there was a lot of ink spilt in commentaries I read this week on who the sower is. Some say it is definitively Jesus. He has to be the sower. Others said, no, this is definitively the, the 12 who will be sent out. Others say, no, this is definitively those of us who would be sowing the seed in our generation. Is it not all three? Can it not be all three? He doesn't pay much attention to the sower. That's just the medium for putting what's truly efficacious in the ears of those who need to hear it, which is the seed. And we find out here that the sower sows, not the seed. Now he starts to interpret it. He doesn't use the word seed. He uses the word word. He sows the word. 
Now, we need to park, just pull over for a second here, because the word word can be confusing in the New Testament. It has a broad range of meaning, actually. For example, sometimes the word logos, the word word, the Greek word for, for word, logos means um, scripture. In the pastoral epistles, it often uh, points to the word of God, the scriptures, the written revelation. Preach the word. Sometimes it refers to the person of Christ. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. The word became flesh, verse 14, dwelt among us. Sometimes, as in here, the word means the message of God. But it's all summed up by how Paul primarily uses it, which is the gospel. Because the gospel includes the scriptures and the way they point to the Savior. The gospel includes the person of Christ and the gospel includes the message of God. That's why I've said here some exposure to the gospel. So he means in this context the message of God Specifically, earlier, the mysteries of the kingdom that have been exposed to you. You get what God is doing in me being here. Now, the disciples didn't fully get it yet. They would be progressing over the next few months to get it completely. But don't get too overworked about, well, is this, you know, the sower sows the word? Is that the Bible? Well, in a sense, yes. Is it the person of Christ? Well, in a sense, yes. Is it the message of God? Well, in a sense, yes. Is it the gospel, the good news of God? Yes, it's all of that. Sometimes the word actually has a combination of those. Romans 10, 8 and following talk about that as well. So what is this? We include in on this word by Matthew and Luke who recorded the same parable. Matthew says in Matthew 13, 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the logos of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom as we saw in chapter one is the king is here. He's establishing his rule. He's establishing his reign. He's worthy to be worshiped and followed. Luke chapter eight, verse 11, speaking of the same parable. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So recording the same event, we hear that it's the word, the word of God, and the word of the kingdom. Which is right? Answer, all of the above. The word then that is sown is the message from God, specifically the gospel, the good news that Jesus has been preaching This indifferent heart has had some exposure. The word was sown in their hearts. They heard. There were some around that little bowl, that ridge that Jesus was teaching in from that cove in the sea, who had been dismissed, who'd walked away. There were those who were exposed to Jesus' message, but had indifferent hearts. Now we get into the heart of the illustration in verse 15 and we find our third characteristic of those with an indifferent heart to the gospel. They're defenseless against Satan's strategies. This is terrible. This is tragic. This is sad beyond description. They are defenseless against Satan's strategies. Jesus now interprets in verse 15. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. Remember the description of the fields last week? 
There were some fields in flatlands, predominantly fields in, Israel's were, in Israel were, were carved into hills with terraces, rock walls around dirt filled in, making a flat place. They would put it in the, 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 the plants in those, um, those little walled dirt terrariums almost. In between these were paths that the sower would have to walk on to scatter. Well-worn paths. Hard pan, unfallowed and unfertilized. Walked on, rained on, hardened, sun-baked, impenetrable. The spiritual explanation of the physical illustration is incredible. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown The seed scattered on the road, the path, hasn't been turned over at all. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes, takes away the word which has been sown in them. It's interesting that in verse 4, when he's telling the parable, he said, the birds came and ate it up. Here, he says, Satan comes and snatches it away. Do you see the illustration? Interesting word picture about birds. But the spiritual explanation is in reference to Satan. Now, one of the favorite things parents do is to feed birds. You can do it with seed. You can do it with with, uh, bread. I still remember... um, taking my boys down to Castaic Lake and throwing in pieces of bread and the ducks come and casting seeds sometimes and watching birds. They are aggressive, clever, precise. Ever notice how intentional they are? You can go out in a field of rocks, throw seed that's the same color as the rocks, And the birds don't come and get the rocks, they get the seeds. They know exactly what they're doing. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing in painting this picture. It's interesting that these birds represent the devil. Whenever the word is sown, preached, talked about, shared, whenever the gospel is offered, explained, Listen, Satan's interest is instantly provoked just as when you throw seed on the ground where it's easily seen, the birds instantly come to that. Satan is provoked when the word is preached. I'm so aware. I was thinking about this this morning, even preparing to preach and praying about this moment that at this very second, at this very second, the enemy of our souls, the devil himself, is provoked by our explanation of the text. And he is looking to come and steal away what you're hearing right now. We should be very careful not to rush by this reference to Satan. The illustration points to the fact that this seed doesn't, it doesn't penetrate into the hard-packed, overtone, overturned, fallow dirt falls on this path on this road it lies on the surface doesn't penetrate the hard hard soil or the hard heart 
So what does this mean? Very simply, these are people who do not take the gospel seriously when they hear it. They do not give it a, a serious hearing. They don't think about it. They don't look at it with any intellectual curiosity or granted any intellectual credibility. They just dismiss it. These are the pundits on the evening newscasts. You ever had that experience when you're sharing the gospel? People are distracted. The person you're talking to is drifting somewhere else. They don't really care. They want to be somewhere else. Or maybe they just tell you flat out. I will never forget being on a flight, British Airways, over to London to, on a ministry trip years ago, sitting down by a couple and trying to talk to them about the Lord, just asking them if they had any thoughts about God or belief. And the little British man said, we were in a seat of three. He leans over and says, sir, we do, have, we do not wish to speak to you about God. It's an impenetrable heart. Where does this come from? What is Satan's involvement in that? Very important. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul provides a behind-the-curtains look at Satan's ministry. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. He says, even if our gospel is veiled... It's veiled to those who are perishing. That veil is very important. It's, it's the, uh, uh, the cloth that would come in front of your face. It spoke of Moses having a veil. In whose case, those who are perishing, unbelievers, listen. In whose case, the God of this world, that's Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but we, we preach Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness in the creation is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Christ. We see it right there. God has shown in the hearts of those who believe. He's opened their ears to hear, given them eyes to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ that Jesus makes sense as the God-man in a way that no syllogism could ever explain. But verse four says, he's working very hard to hide the identity of the Savior from those who are unbelieving. Just remember that. Even in our evangelism, remember that the focus is not the plan of salvation, but the person who died for our sins. Our philosophy is a person, not a plan. Notice that the seed, the word, the gospel is present here. It's cast on this hard pan back in Mark 4. But it never goes beyond a simple hearing. Alexander McLaren said, familiarity with the truth robs it of all penetrating power. The soil represents habitual and sustained indifference to the gospel and the word. Habitual and sustained indifference to the gospel, to the word. 
to the seed. Now, in this parable, you'll see that the seed is only safe when it's buried. It's only safe when it's buried. Taken in. Three of these soils don't respond. What do we do with that? Have you ever thought much about that passage? This has helped me understand the passage in Luke 18, verse 8. It's a, it's a troubling passage. Jesus says in Luke 18, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, listen, when the Son of Man returns, when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? You know what that's saying? Unbelief will be so pervasive at the return of Christ What did Isaiah say? Looking for a tenth. I don't want to make too much out of the percentage here, but this is one out of four. Many will find the broad path. Few will find the narrow path. This is so kind of God, so kind of Jesus to tell us, don't be alarmed by unbelief. But don't drop faithfulness in sowing the word. What do we take away from this soil? Well, the stress of the parable is on hearing as the distinguishing mark of discipleship. He's got the insiders, the disciples of verse 11, those who believe alongside him who have received the mystery of the kingdom of God, that he is the Messiah, that he would open up the gospel to Jews and Gentiles and create the church. Just interesting, the word, word, appears eight times in verses 14 to 20, and the word here appears four times. Satan, persecution, the cares of the world are disastrous for those who give the gospel only a casual hearing. So what? So what? So Christian, as you are being faithful in sowing the word, in telling the gospel, don't be disillusioned, don't be discouraged by unbelief. Don't give up either. Don't assume that because someone didn't hear the first time that they are carte blanche, the impenetrable soil. They may not be. We don't know that. I think also for me, this, this puts me back on my knees and praying for gospel opportunity praying that people understand through what we're presenting that that a response is discipleship. It's giving your life to the Lord. It's to ask God for the grace in those hearers that we're telling about the life-saving, life-enriching in this world power of the gospel, its message. Also, if you believe, would you just, would you pause and thank God that you're a part of that 10th portion in Isaiah, that you're a part of the one-fourth in Mark 4, that, that you have ears to hear, that you have eyes to see, that you believe. Can you believe that you believe? What a grace it is that this is true to you. That didn't come from you. It was revealed to you by a gracious, loving Father. But as we're going to see in these next soils, I just have to ask, 
Has your heart been impenetrable to the gospel? Do you listen on Sundays and then walk out as if nothing was said? Do people talk to you about spiritual truth and has no resonance with your heart? Do you sit in care group and wait expectantly for it to be over so you don't have to talk about these things anymore? If we look at this parable without considering our own hearts, we miss a significant arrow of God's word 